So I'm going to do a short recap. You know, it was just yesterday and the day before, but for those who might not have been able to hear it. So we started with Katagiri Roshi, and who was talking about dynamic original energy. And that this energy, anyway, so um, this energy is everywhere and it's in everything, including ourselves. And so Katagiri says, this is Buddha. This energy is Buddha, just like the chant book is Buddha. And therefore, um, since this energy is in us, we are Buddha. We are Buddha. So, <clears throat> and then Katagiri went on to talk about um, the Dharma, that the Dharma is the functioning of the Buddha's way. And that um, we are part of that functioning of the Buddha way. And so we can trust the Buddha, of course, we can trust ourselves and we can trust the Dharma. We can rest in the Dharma. Dharma being the truth. Universal existence. <clears throat> so then we also talked about growing our lives by studying, uh, studying and uh, sitting in Zazen and then burning the flame of our life force in everything we do. In other words, doing everything wholeheartedly. And then our light becomes more evident. Okay, so that was Thursday. Yesterday, we were talking about light and we were talking about the Buddha's last teaching, um, be a light unto yourself. And so there are seven things we looked at. One was uh, an article by Larry Rosenberg, who was talking about how important it is that we as students of the way be skeptical and question our teachers, our teachers and our the, the teachings, you know, the Buddha said, if this doesn't make sense to you, if this isn't what's happening for you, you know, if what my teaching says doesn't apply, toss it away. Um, and then Rosenberg said, with teachers, we need to be able to ask questions just to be sure what's going on and check the comportment of the teachers. You know, are they in line with the Buddhist teachings? So that was an important thing. So you can be a light unto yourself. You can be a light unto yourself. You can listen to other people and take in information, but ultimately your life is up to you. Your practice is up to you. Right? You full responsibility for that. Okay. <clears throat> And then the second article was about, was about, uh, essentially it was about a, a um, session that was talking about the transmission uh, of light and that um, ultimately um, the hardest part of our practice And, and being a light unto ourselves and to others um, is, is a question of our own self-acceptance, that we don't accept, it, accept certain parts of ourselves. And so, um, so we talked about that, that we, we are the light in, in the dark room at night, you know, when things are really rough, it comes down to us. 
so the importance of self-acceptance. And so then we did an exercise where we found something you know, inside of us that we don't particularly like. And you know, we looked at it, we turned the light inwards and said, okay, what does this feel like? What does this look like? Is there an emotion attached to it? You know, what's, what is it, basically? And then we did a little bit further step, is after we explored it a little bit, then we um, offered compassion to that thing. And then just kind of noted, was, did that have some sort of impact or not? So today, we're going to talk about Dobin Zenji. And the reason why we're talking about him He's the father of Soto Zen. And so all of the, the, these other teachers that I've mentioned are all familiar with Dogen. And they're, usually their talks and writings refer back to Dogen's work. Because it's the essential, that's the beginning. That's the, well, not the beginning, beginning, but to Soto, Soto Zen. So I want to talk about him just a little bit and then emphasize a couple of things that are important in some of his writings. Okay. So, as, as always, I like to put a time frame on things. So, Dogen Zenji was around in the 13th century. Um, he was born in 1200 and, and died in 1253. And, and his location was Kyoto, Japan. He was born there and he died there. Um, and in between, he traveled, traveled around. Um, so, he was originally ordained as a monk in the Tendai school in Kyoto. And, but he became dissatisfied with the school because it wouldn't be there. The doctrine did not answer the ultimate question that he had. And that question was, if human beings are endowed with the Dharma, the Dharma nature by birth, why do all Buddhas of all ages, who are undoubtedly enlightened, right? find it necessary to seek enlightenment and engage in spiritual practice? That's a great question. It's a great question. And so nobody in the Tendai school could answer that and you know, put him to thinking about other things and that made him not so happy. So he went to China and he was going to study with the, with the, with the Chan, um, Chan folks, Chan Buddhists. So, it's interesting to note that, you know, the people that he's talking about, that they go off, Buddha Dharma, Bodhidharma, um, who brought the uh, teachings from India, meditated <coughs> in the cave for seven years. So he was undoubtedly had something special in the first place, some knowledge, and yet seven years he sent in a cave in meditation. And Shakyamuni Buddha sat for six years. And Dogen, in turn, actually, went to China and sat for four years. So anyway, that was his initial question. So he went to China to seek out what he believed to be a more authentic Buddhism. And um, he finally was training with, a, with a, uh, a teacher by the name of Jiantang Rujing, who was an eminent teacher of the Kaodong lineage of Chinese Chan, or Chan. <clears throat> So, um, and this style was, was uh, different from other masters that, whom Dogen had encountered previously. So, under this teacher, Ru Jing, Dogen 
realize liberation of body and mind upon hearing the master say, cast off body and mind. So this phrase, um, you see it, it's a little bit different, but it's basically the same meaning. You'll see it throughout Dogen's writings. It's drop away body and mind. I mean, we read that all the time in our basic chants. And so it had a huge importance um, throughout Dogen's life. And so um, one example that you all, I'm sure, all of you have heard is from the Genjo Koan, to study the Buddha ways, to study the self, to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, one's body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> um, a second thing uh, we find in one of the chants that we read once a week is Jijuyuzamai. And this, the, the, the phrase before incense, meeting a master, chanting, repentance, etc., just wholeheartedly sit. Just wholeheartedly sit. And then he goes on to say, teachers and disciples personally transmitted this excellent method as the essence of the teaching. And then he goes on to say in the same writing that the transmission, in reference to the transmission, thus you will raise up. Buddha activity everywhere cause everyone to have the opportunity of ongoing Buddhahood and vigorously uplift the ongoing Buddha Dharma. So, and lastly, he talks about immediate realization and extending the Buddha's great activity, grass, trees, and lands, which are embraced by this teaching, together radiate a great light. So we're back to the great light and endlessly expound the inconceivable profound Dharma. So those are some of the examples um, of in just a few of his writings where these things come up. <clears throat> so getting back to Dogen, he, uh, in 2012, 20, 27, he received Dharma transmission from this teacher, Rujin, and that settled his question. After he sat for four years and received Dharma transmission, then he said, I have settled uh, life's quest of the great matter. So it was like, I get it. So he returned to uh, Japan and began promoting the practice of just sitting in meditation. And then uh, he started writing things and getting those that been one. And he eventually broke relations with the Tendai school forever. They were both in Kyoto and there was a lot of friction there, so he moved. And he created, eventually founded the temple AHG, which we Still, it's the first um, uh, monastery for Soto Zen, and then it remains the head temple of the Soto Zen school today. So, so as we know, he's written he's very prolific. The Shobo Genzo, just in and of itself, is huge, and then which translates to the treasury of the true Dharma eye. That was his next opus, and then many other things that he wrote regarding poetry and commentary, and then the monastic code in Japan, the first Zen monastic code. Okay, so, um, so that's kind of his background. 
And I, I want to go back to the Fukun uh, Zazenji and just pay attention to a couple of things in particular, or I'll just mention because we've already done it once today. It's probably enough. It's so long. Okay, so he um, is talking about you should cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words, and, and following after speech, and learn the backward step in terms of light within. So I think we've kind of experimented with that already. Um, but it's interesting that he's talking about this um, the intellectual understanding and that that isn't the deal. It's great to intellectually understand things. It, it can help helps you understand what you're dealing with and so forth, but it isn't the real, what we're talking about is the, the, the direct experience. This is what I was talking about in the inquiry that I did the other day. Um, and Suzuki Roshi talks about the same thing, direct experience um, of reality. So what is that? Which kind of leads into um, the dropping away of body and mind, in a way. That's a whole lot. kind of out of order. So first of all, as far as the dropping away of body and mind, it's kind of strange language for us here now today. And so another way of looking at it, and this is a lot how Flip talks about the same process. But he, he uses language, more, more modern language. So that is softening the attachment to the self, to the identity, to our ideas, to our thoughts, our feelings about who we are, and letting go of the solid self. This is what Dogen is talking about when he's saying dropping body and mind. It's the same process. Letting go, letting go. So in actuality, um, part of that process, the, the way we do that, let go of things, or able to do that, is we change the relationship that we have to the solid self, or to the parts of the solid self, to our ideas about things. We change those relationships. Instead of holding on to it, grasping onto it, and believing it, you know, and defending all that stuff, defending the, the self, the ego, and all of that. Instead, we, we soften around it, and then we can perceive it in a different way. We can perceive it in a relationship as more of a friendly sort of connection instead of it ruling the whole, the whole being. Does that make sense? So, all right. Now I want to move on to suchness. So the last part of this fourth paragraph from the Bhutan um, Zazenji. Yeah. Okay, it says you should therefore cease, I already read this, but I'll read it here. Should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words, <coughs> following after speech, and learn the backward step that turns our light inwardly to illuminate yourself. Body and mind of themselves drop away in your original face will be manifest. If you want to attain suchness, you should practice suchness. 
without delay. So what is this word suchness? What does that mean? So um, <clears throat> so the definition is referring to the nature of reality free from conceptual elaborations and the subject-object distinction. So what that actually entails um, is, there's a great description I have here, anyway, is, is it's taking a duality of absolute and relative put it together. It's recognizing both at the same time, like kind of like practice realization, one thing. And so, um, yeah, so, so the relative and absolute nature of all things that they, they they're fit together. Okay, here's the example. So um, I'm going to use my brother Miles in my talk. Anyway, um, so my brother uh, used to work for Texas Youth Commission, which got a little trouble a while back. Anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but he worked, he was a psychologist, he was a therapist, and he worked with the kids that were oh, in bad trouble. They were teens and they had committed awful crimes, mm -hmm. violent crimes. And, um, <laughs> and so he had a lot of compassion for those guys. You know, he was listening to them, he was being on therapy with them. And he learned, he got to know them and understand them and what their lives were like. And he had a tremendous amount of appreciation for them considering what their life had been like and then who they were. So on the one hand, he had tremendous compassion and, and cared about those kids. He was the one that determined whether they were going to go to prison or whether they you know, put them into a program to continue in life. Yeah. Uh, so big decision to make. But anyway, so he said, you know, I, I really understood those kids and really had a lot of empathy for them. And, so forth. But he said, I'd never turn my back on them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because they couldn't be trusted. They were, you know, they were, they were really damaged. So it's kind of like that, you know, and I think we all are like that to a certain extent. We've got stuff, you know, kind of distorted or what have you. And yet there's this other part that's, you know, right here, right now, and you can have wonderful relationship with another person, understanding who they are right here, right now. Yeah. You can you can see through anything else, just the, the top layer of, oh, this was a this is a bad kid, you know. You can see through that and see them in their humanness and see their light as well. So I just think that's so fascinating. Um, but that's that's what such is is about it sees the duality and oneness and it it's a, it's a it's thinglessness you know it's not like the label instead it's much more complex and yeah much more approachable than that so 
The third thing I wanted to talk about was um, also from, from that same passage, another section. The zazen I speak of is not learning meditation. It is simply the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, the practice realization of totally culminated enlightenment, manifestation of ultimate reality. Um, yeah, so I just think that's such a lovely image, repose and bliss. And when we are sitting, I guess I should have said this whole Topic that I'm talking, I'm talking about Zazen here, <laughs> focusing on Zazen. <laughs> Didn't say that, but that's what I'm doing. Um, is the idea of repose and bliss when you when you come to the place when you're in meditation where I think it ultimately happens after a few days of sitting. <laughs> your, the thoughts are still in your head. They're still present, but they recede to the back, and then you feel a sense of calm. It's kind of that, that, that's where we come to. And the bliss comes, I don't know, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, and I see the bliss as just being the joy of just being, just being, and that's what comes forward with bliss. And that's the gift, I think, from, from meditation. And it's also showing the possibility of maintaining um, peace, and bliss, or rest and bliss, in our everyday lives. Um, that, that place where things can recede back and what comes forward is resting. It's resting and enjoying. Okay. And then there's just one other thing. Okay. This is the last thing. So Dogen taught enlightenment in practice, practice and realization as one thing <clears throat> without any trace of attainment. So what does that mean? It means without striving, we talk about this a lot, right? Letting go of the striving. And ultimately, what is important that Dogen would say is the sustained practice. Coming back, coming back. And it works on you over time. So it's not this attainment of getting somewhere, it's that over time you were affected by this practice and changed. So if you wish to practice the way of the Buddhas, you should expect nothing. Expect nothing. You just do your practice. Cut off the mind that seeks and do not cherish a desire to gain the fruit of Buddhahood. Because then that's going to land you chasing after something. And then you've gotten into striving and then you're a muck. Alignment and practice are the same. Thus, our Buddha nature, which we all have, is already enlightened. 
before we mature sufficiently to open to enlightenment. So we just practice. So, any questions or comments? Now that I have two questions and two comments, and I'll take under three minutes. <laughs> we got plenty um, of time. I had a lovely experience of suchness yesterday. And there was a little ant dying on the floor in front of us recently. And the suchness was. Is seeing it is dying. I'm in the process of dying eventually, but it was dying. <coughs> and knowing that we were separate, but we were connected in our existence, we're born, we die. And that there really wasn't much I could do to relieve its individual bodily pain, but I could join it energetically in its dying mm. and sit with it. Mm. And so that was that. And the two questions have to do with practice. Question one, um, and I've read this in, in, in various books. I think Jokos is one of them. And it talked about how to sit. And that if, you're, if you sit with all those different elements, like in the, in the chant we read today, once you have all of those elements, you are in enlightenment. There's nothing else you need to do. You're already sitting there. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, you're already enlightened to begin with. Wait. So to use different words, you're in the flow. I don't know. I see it. So here's my hang up with that. <laughs> I can't get into lotus position. I can't even get into half lotus sometimes. <laughs> and yeah. so I wonder. Um, and and the description we read in this chant is the hand on it in a certain position. I'm wondering how much of that really um, is essential. Yeah, I look at that as Dogen was mainly dealing with young men in a monastery, and more than likely they could probably do that position, but. As you know, here in Alpamata, we don't focus. We focus on the position that you're able to do. So some of us have old bodies and they, they just can't do that. So that shouldn't be a problem. It shouldn't be an obstacle to sit. So my second of two comments mm -hmm. is, um, I don't know how other people hold the world, all the creation. I don't see bad or good. In anything. I see uh, creation and I see actions that don't support life and those that do. And that is my second comment. Mm -hmm. My second question has again to do with practice. For me personally, there are some times where I can hold bodily. Um, discomfort and work with it and, ex and open my container. And there are some times where if I didn't take an ibuprofen before I got here, I wouldn't even be able to get into position. So, in terms of practice, 
I, um, I just have questions about um, building perseverance and my container and also not letting myself get to the point where it's so uncomfortable it's distracting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think practice, I, I think the whole thing about the how you sit, again, it has to do with the capabilities and different bodies and nobody's, not everybody's built the same and you know, they say different ages and so forth. So I wouldn't fix on that too much. That's not my concern. If there's a value in when you um, are in pain in sitting, to hang with it a little while just to see what your body's up to. There are times when the body will say, oh, this hurts, and then I have to, have to, have to, have to move. But as it turns out, you really didn't have to have to move. It's just your body saying, I'm uncomfortable, stop. You know, and, and, and there's nothing more to it. It's not like you have um, physical, you know. So, um, so yeah. So you just check anyway and see, is this, you know, I don't know how many years ago, I used to sit in half lotus and, um, yeah, I, after, I was in pain all the time and just try to sit through it and I finally realized, I talked to her about <laughs> to my um, physical therapist and said, you know, I'm having this, what do you think? You shouldn't be sitting that way. Your leg doesn't do external rotation. <laughs> okay, all right. So I don't sit there anywhere. I didn't say something. But so yeah, it's a it's about knowing your body. Rosemary. Oh, why am I looking at this now? It's a lamp. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Hi, everybody. So um, the um, exercise from yesterday, the activity to um, look at something about ourselves and, and see if we could get some space around it, it led me to a whole other part that um, was very... Um, the perfectionistic part. And, um, you know, I, I went a little deeper with that and saw that behind that is just this very deep fear of not being seen and heard. And that was really, really painful. And, um, but I'm grateful for understanding that that's what's going on. And, you know, um, then I could, you know, try to develop some comfort and compassion for that part. Um, and, and it relieves me of this striving, you know, you were just talking about that. It's, it's horrific. And, um, um, but, you know, a very, um, very integrated part of my identity, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, so understanding um, the root of it. And um, so my question about what you were just saying about experience over intellectual and um learning to um 
um, soften uh, these these parts of ourselves, which the striving would be a, a really harsh part. Um, so um, to um, move these stories, give it more space, I think would be the way to um, to um, I guess let let the light in. Give me more space, she said. To, more space to let the light in. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. So what I, the question really was to drop away body and mind, I, for me anyway, requires this whole long, you know, and continuous process of understanding who I am and how I operate mm -hmm. so, that, so that I can, if I, if I don't know any of that, then I, I can't um, um, give it more space so that I can look at it and, mm -hmm. and create more um, room and more light. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not making any sense at all. Yeah, I think it's, a non, it's an ongoing process as you learn more. First, you may not be aware that like I was saying the other day, I was working with something. I had no, until I actually looked for something, I didn't know there was something up. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so you start where you are in that respect, and then, well, this is something new. I don't remember this, or, you know, I've this before. And then as you do each, each time you do that kind of thing, I think it gets easier as far as the process of it. But you, I don't, I don't think you ever stop learning um, about yourself because we're always changing too. But um, yeah, I because I, I, dro dropping away body and mind sounds like a you know a one shot deal. <laughs> one shot deal. <laughs> yeah. but no, I don't. I, I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily that. So, I mean, there are people that have experiences that you know. It's, well, that the Ken show experience or something, and that's not what we really are striving for. Um, Thank you. Because uh, that's not the point. The practice is the point. Um, so, but you can have you can have different experiences, the glimpses of things, and so forth. Then it's it's useful from the standpoint of oh, there is more to life than just just the ordinary mind that we see it is more complex than that much more it's much more true and so yeah we have genev thank you rosemary thank you hi Genevieve. hi um i'm curious because a hey dogan was wondering why you know does a a Buddha sit for years, um, and and then in our chant today, uh, we said, you know, essentially the practice has nothing to do with sitting or lying down. So I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> That's token for you. <laughs> so what do you think that could possibly mean? Right. What is the practice then? I don't get it <laughs> I, I think that the practice of sitting is a means a means you know it's it's the way 
it's lots of way. It's an everyday thing. It's not just the fact that you're sitting. No. It's that you're being aware all the time, as much as you can. And that's a capacity I think you build over time for being with at different levels. That's more the practice. And sitting gets you started. You start with just sitting, just sitting as opposed to not doing anything else. I mean, the idea is, is he explains it is that you're not, I think I read this the other day. Anyway, that you're not, you're not focusing on anything in particular. You're not watching the ant on the floor. You're not watching the candle. I mean, you could do that, but um, <coughs> the idea is to kind of loosen things up, you know. Be open, just open to it. That's kind of what the shifting thing is about. It's a bigger container and seeing what, what is there and putting things in proportion. And you said that Dogen ended up solving his question about why they sit, but what was the answer? Well, he went to China. He was asking why, why do you have to sit? And then he sat. Right. And learn why it was important to sit. But okay. Because he did it, you know. But why did he have to? Why do any of us need to sit? We're enlightened beings. Why do we have to sit? Yes, why? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So how do you relate to the world? How do you relate to yourself? Reactively, mostly, I think. There you go. That's why we sit. That's our auto, that's our default, right? That's the ordinary mind. That's what we're doing. And it takes a while for us to realize that there is another way of dealing with ourselves and other people. How we can have, how we can step back and and look at something, be with something, and not overreact, but just be with. And what happens when that happens? This, I've seen you do this. What happens? Everything softens. Let go of these things that bind us, right? The fear, you know, whatever it is, <clears throat> shame. We start to let, let loose of it. And we, we see something else. We don't, instead of seeing all the causes for that, because a lot of times we have a general orientation, like some people are really anxious. Some people are kind of angry people for whatever reason. So they look for it. It's almost like they look for it, and not consciously. So they're constantly straight out. But then you learn that. Um, <sighs> You know, you can let go of that. Let loose of that top of that. There is something else. Oh, nice people. Kind people. We can be together in peace. Yeah, yeah please stop. stop. Okay. Thank you, Jeanette. Let me read it.
Um, so I have a couple of questions from the reading. And so I noticed it the first time around and, you know, I thought, oh, this is silly. Don't let yourself get distracted by this, by these questions. Um, it's uh, last or next or the last paragraph. Um, you've gained the potential opportunity of human form. Do not use your time in vain. Who would take wasteful delight in the spark from a, the Flintstone? Besides, form and substance are like the dew on the grass, destiny like the dart of lightning, emptied in an instant, vanished in a flash. And I think it's related to the next parent, uh, par paragraph, which is uh, talks about long accustomed to groping for the elephant. Uh -huh. So it's a spark from the Flintstone. Um, you know, that's very appropriate for that error. But he's saying, don't take wasteful delight in the part, spark from the Flintstone. Yet he goes on to talk about do on the grass. I mean, wasteful delight. Now I'm thinking about as I read it and it's like, well, the spark from a Flintstone might be delightful, like a sparkler or a, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, what does that mean? Don't take wasteful delight, just observe it. Just observe it and don't yeah, think. Don't grasp onto it. Don't grasp on to that spark. Grasp it. Hmm. And yeah, even though it's something a little unusual that's happening, that's kind of attention getting. I, I think it's a matter of distraction. Yeah, distraction. It gets back to don't be distracted. Don't be distracted by some little lively event or some oh, you know, spark. Literary yeah. And yeah, yeah, I like that. Okay. And then, so he talks about long accustomed to groping for the elephant. Do not be suspicious of the true dragon. Well, I especially love that uh, elephant parable whatever you call it, the blind man, you know, blind men feeling, that could be blind women, darn it, feeling all these different parts of the elephant. <laughs> because um, that, that's also a distraction in a way. And it's like chasing thoughts, perhaps. You know, it's well, like- I don't see it as that. I see it as they're, they're just touching one part of the elephant and then claiming that the elephant is actually that part instead of the totality of it. That's what that's about. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so one, you know, the blind women are also talking. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Talking, yeah. Among, I'll move my this book. They're also talking amongst themselves, you know, arguing. That's about, right. You know, I mean, so that's another distraction in a way. Oh, 
it's, it's not this, it's that. Oh, well, what I experienced is different. So they're having this lively dialogue. And so it's also ne necessary for someone to be skeptical, skeptical, you know, and kind of, oh, wonder, you know, what is this? I can't remember if anybody ever figures out it's all parts of, one, of the same elephant. I don't remember that, but in a way, it, it's the true dragon. Okay, I'm just kind of rambling, but also <laughs> meaningful. It's meaningful to me because this is how I, I think. And then also he goes on to don't be suspicious of the true dragon. So for me, kind of what that means is once you realize that all these things we're seeing are partial and then we have this experience of dropping away body and mind and it's like we kind of have such a different experience of right. We have a realization and that can be disconcerting. It's like, oh, things are not, I'm not thinking. Does this making any sense to anybody? I'm not thinking and things are not like I thought. And that's the dragon part to me that it's like, oh, that energy starts moving and you're you know, I'm having a really different experience of the world. It's a yeah. experience. It can be like, it can be disorienting. Well, I was just looking at it as the dragon being like the truth. You know, yeah. Dharma. So don't be suspicious of the Dharma. And yeah. And the Dharma is the true dragon, and that can be unsettling because it can upend your previous, it's delusions. It's kind of like dropping, ending delusions or entering the Dharma gate to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that's why this practice can be, things shift. Yeah, yeah, it's disconcerting for sure. Yeah. You know, I think that's where you have, have to really trust in your own mind you know, oh, things are shifting. And it's like, what is that? And you, you know, I find I have to turn back to trusting that experience. Yeah. Not being fearful of it. Yeah. That's all. Okay. Thank you, Lisa. And now we have Lisa, Judge. Oh, Lisa. Hi there. Um, I, I think I'm sort of stating the obvious, but what Lisa just said, the idea of the flint and the spark, I think, and, and again, uh, I'm asking a question, I guess, what this raises for me is what we're talking about is having a, an experience of something spiritual, something beyond ourselves and so what what you're a lot of what you've said today 
is in the service of achieve of of experiencing that or reaching that goal, I guess, so that the spark from the flint in another context is beautiful and worthy, like the Mona Lisa, worthy of knowing. <laughs> but in the context of achieving an experience of or a relationship with something bigger than ourselves, beyond ourselves, Buddha, God, what we're talking about, everything Dogen is talking about is how to help us, how to help us have that kind of experience, which wouldn't be directions you would give to a child in a schoolroom who's trying to learn arithmetic or something. <laughs> anyway, yeah. that's a, that's... It's kind of tricky to even talk about because it, like he says, it's not, this isn't about attainment. It's not about striving. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so, it's, so you say, well, striving or something. But it's, so it's more like, and actually the actual enlightenment is kind of it's secondary, mm -hmm. according to Dogen. If you never had, and, and Suzuki Roshi writes about that, which I have a quote me, um, that it, it doesn't even matter if ultimately if you reach enlightenment or not, or not it's, it's the whole, it's how you live your life. It's how you live your life. That's, that's the focus of it. And, and I think there's a, there's a state of mind or there's a, Again, yeah, and and I think I, I think a lot about um, the state of mind. I I think of residential retreats. I think I mentioned this yesterday, and maybe other people can't relate to it, but maybe they can't. Anyway, um, if you're in this practice day after day, and you get into a certain rhythm, and the body just starts to slow down whole thing and you just kind of you move together you move around you know you negotiate each other a different way and and then my experience is that in that slowing down and being with others doing the same thing you start to notice more things in the quiet and the stillness you start to notice I don't know you notice the ant on the floor and he's dying. Or you notice, oh, there's grass on the floor. Maybe I should pick that up. And you start just noticing what is around you and and then you act in an appropriate way with it. I think that that's something a lot of times we never have in our daily life um, if we're not paying attention because we're kind of hurrying and trying to get stuff done and complete our, our you know, our little checklist. And so this is an opportunity, this kind of reflection, being in stillness and repetition and so forth, where you slow it all down and, and really get to pay attention to yourself, you know, to, to everything that's going on. And relating to it, more importantly, relating to it in a different way. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Thank you.
What two minutes? Mm -hmm. um, so I just want to offer up one of the questions that has been sitting with me throughout the talk and after your reading is like sort of what I think Jeanette was asking, like, and what is the nature of practice? And um, I, I think a lot in like metaphor and like a metaphor from a philosopher that I've read before, Camus came up, he spoke about the myth of Sisyphus, like pushing the rock up the hill just to see it fall back again. <laughs> and one of his big philosophical thoughts was uh, in order to live a good life, one must imagine Sisyphus is happy with that process, right? That he's not so overly attached to like the pain he's experiencing, <laughs> pushing the rock up the hill just to see it fall back down again. He's not so in it that he's so hyper-focused on the physical pain he's in, the emotional pain that must cause. Um, and that came up for me when thinking about the nature of practice, because to me it's like it's as if the self is the rock, right? And you, you're softening your relationship with that object and the inevitability, maybe it falls back down again. You know? Um, and like the you sit to observe that. And it's that softening and that distance you gain by sitting that is the practice and why practice is necessary because it's always going to be, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, I think it's true. But on the other hand, it it's true, but it's also there is there is some movement there too. But you're not pushing. You're not making it happen. It happens. Sometimes the rock just disappears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's. Okie dokie, I think it's time, so thank you very much. <laughs>